Welcome to People and Profit. I'm Yuka Hoye, and we're bringing you this special edition from snowy Davos in Switzerland, hosting the annual gathering of global leaders, the World Economic Forum. Coming up. Where will the global economy land in 2024 amid a spike in geopolitical tensions and a growing risk of fragmentation? We'll speak with a top economist at the International Monetary Fund. As artificial intelligence advances in leaps and bounds, how is the global chip industry navigating the era of AI everywhere? A conversation with Intel's top executive. Racing to the moon and beyond or fostering global cooperation? We'll get an astronaut's view on the future of space exploration. Inflation may be easing, but the global economy seems yet to come out of the woods now to get a better sense of where the world economy is headed. I'm joined here by Gita Gopinath, the first Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. Great to have you here with us, France 24, Gita. It's a pleasure to join you, Yuka. Well, the world economy, is the world economy heading for a soft landing, meaning uh, avoiding a recession while taming inflation? Yeah. I think the prospects of, a, of having a soft landing has gone up especially over the second half of last year. We've seen inflation come down quite rapidly, better than expected. At the same time, the global economy has been more resilient than expected. So that is the combination that, if it holds up, will be a soft landing. Given what we're seeing in terms of the data, we think that is quite likely. But of course, we're not completely out of the woods because while inflation has come down quite a lot, the job is not done. Central bankers have to remain vigilant more cautiously. Um, and it's also very important to keep in mind that there are conflicts erupting in different regions of the world which have implications for the global economy. Exactly, with the, 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 the recent rise in a spike in geopolitical tensions and, as you mentioned, with the interest rates remaining high, how precarious then is the current situation? Firstly, I think we should recognize the positive that despite the very big increase in interest rates that we saw that central banks had to do to bring inflation down, the world economy has held up quite well. I mean, an economy like the U.S. is doing very strongly. The euro area, you've certainly seen more of a slowdown. But the risks that exist are, for instance, if the conflict in the Middle East escalates and becomes a much bigger regional conflict, and by that leads to much higher increases in shipping costs, increase in the price of oil, that is a, would be a big risk for the global economy, if that were to happen. We're not there, certainly not there yet. Shipping costs have gone up, but it's nothing like the pandemic level uh, increase in those costs. So at this point, it is contained. Geopolitical tensions, this is a big year of elections. That produces uncertainty of its own kind. Uh, and we've, of course, seen you know tensions grow between the two largest economies of the world, the US and China. There's also been progress, though. I think there's more of a conversation happening between the countries, so there's a hopeful sign there. But I think geopolitical tensions, climate events, conflicts are some of the risks we are paying close attention to. Of course, you mentioned that shipping costs have increased, not a massive uh, disruption to trade yet from the, from the regional tensions in the Middle East. But it comes at a time when, uh, when protectionist measures and other uh, trade tensions uh, have already increased risks of fragmentation and deglobalization. Uh, what do you see the way forward? The last few years have not been good for global uh, engagement in terms of uh, restrictions on trade. So for instance, if you look at 2022, 
there were 3,000 new trade restrictions imposed. That number in 2019 was around 1,000. 2023, again, we've seen, I believe we have approximately 3,000 new restrictions. So the threat of geoeconomic fragmentation is now, I would say, increasingly a reality. We see that in terms of trade flows, where it's going, in terms of foreign direct investment flows, much more happening within aligned blocks as opposed to across blocks of countries. So it is uh, an important risk. And all of this kind of rerouting of trade can ultimately put inflationary pressure on the economy, raise the cost of living for people around the world. So this is something we've been talking about for a while and saying it's very important to be careful about not going down the slippery slopes. Yes, you need to build resilience. National security is important, but you don't want to end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is basically giving up all the gains we've gotten from having good trade integration. And artificial intelligence, of course, is a big theme uh, in Davos this year. Uh, there's much excitement about the promises, about potential benefits, but also a lot of worries about its potential risks. And the IMF, in a recent report, a report warned that the technology in the labor market could benefit some while leaving others behind. Uh, now, could it lead to um, could it lead to deepening inequality? Our numbers show that a very large number of the population labor market will be affected uh, by AI in the sense of 40% of the global labor market will be exposed to AI. Now exposure is not a bad thing because you can benefit from having a technology that raises the productivity of a worker and that's a good thing. But of course there's also the risk of uh, displacement from job or you know, negative effects on wages that you can get. So that's something that we are looking into very closely. It's not happening right this moment, but it's something that can evolve over time. We need a global solution in terms of how to regulate AI, either if, you know, thinking about the technology and more importantly about how we apply it to make sure that it's beneficial for humanity. But individual countries also need to make sure that their labor market policies, their tax policies, what they're doing in terms of reskilling and retraining, including what firms are doing in terms of reskilling and retraining, is in line to make sure that this technology ultimately benefits humanity. And that we should not take as a given. Gita Gopinath, thank you for sharing your insight with us on France 24. Thank you so much. Rapid advances in generative AI mean a huge increase in demand for advanced microchips. To find out more, I came to speak with Christoph Schell, Chief Commercial Officer at Intel. Christoph Schell, Chief Commercial Officer at Intel, thank you for speaking to us uh, on France 24. Thank you. Well, artificial intelligence is really at the heart of your business strategy right now. You're seeing a seismic shift from an oil-driven economy of the past decades to a silicon-driven economy. Could you tell us more about what that entails? So, look, firstly, we believe that AI will happen everywhere. And that's a huge opportunity for Intel because we are everywhere. You know, we can bring AI to you on a PC. We can enable it on the edge. We can do it in data centers and we can do it in the cloud. So AI everywhere is how we call it. And we actually launched our first products just before uh, the holiday break uh, last year. Uh, we launched Intel uh, Core Ultra. It's a four nanometer chip that goes into computers. We've been working with over 100 ISVs to bring AI 
capabilities live in their applications, and we're now ramping that product. I emphasize the PC because I believe that's where, for a lot of people, AI will become real. I think large language models and training in the cloud, that's huge, a huge opportunity. But for the masses, using AI, inferencing on the edge and in PCs is what will really make it real. And it's just, as you said, you've just released a new product. Now, these kind of really tiny microchips are going to be at the heart of the industry in the next decades and years. The next decades to come, I think, what, why, the reason why I'm so excited about it, I'm, I'm European, I'm, I'm German, um, this four nanometer product is actually for a majority manufactured in our fab in Ireland, okay, so the, the supply chain for this product is established in Europe, it gives huge access for European companies to participate with us, to manufacture in Europe, to get access to technology, to design together with us, so we're having a lot of discussions right now as we are expanding our fab network uh, with the investments in Magdeburg, also the test and assembly facility in Poland. So we're creating an economic zone uh, footprint for Intel in Europe that is going to be super important for us in the future. And what kind of production capacity are we looking at? That depends very much on what type of product we're going to manufacture. We are going to manufacture advanced nodes. So I talked already about four nanometer nodes in, in Ireland. To so think about those nanometers getting even smaller, three nanometers, two 1.8. Um, and so, you know, depending then on what industries we are serving, whether we serve a automotive industry or the healthcare industry, that has a different impact on volume that we manufacture. But it's going to be sizable. And uh, we believe that, you know, with the investments that we are making in Europe, the investments that we're also making in the US, that we will give the Western world access to semis that they never had, because exactly what you said, we believe that in the next 50 years, a lot of geopolitical decisions will be made on who will have access to semis, and we want Europe and the US to be empowered. Now, supply disruptions in the wake of the pandemic uh, served as a wake-up call, um, exposing how vulnerable the microchip industry was to Correct. global uh, disruptions and unexpected outcomes. Uh, what lessons have you learned? I think it's a, it's a very basic lesson that if you, if you consolidate all your manufacturing in one geographical location, you're exposed. You're exposed because you have no choice. You're exposed because you have no alternatives. And uh, we have actually learned how important semis are. They power everything. And we had, uh, in some industries, uh, products couldn't be shipped. They couldn't be finalized because of components that are costing us cents. They were not available and we couldn't finalize the product. And so a lot of our customers have understood that democratizing supply chains, giving choice uh, to manufacture across the globe in different hubs is super important. So the investment that we are making in Magdeburg, in Poland, is also supposed to give that choice to our customers. It's also giving an opportunity for our suppliers to also distribute uh, their setups and to democratize supply chains. Crystal Schell from Intel, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The war in Ukraine has put global cooperation to the test, but there are exceptions in space. I asked Matthias Mora, an astronaut from the European Space Agency, about how Russian and Western crew continue to work together on the International Space Station. 
Well, the International Space Station started at the end of the Cold War as a peace project to bring East and West together. And we've been up there in space now for almost 24 years. And this project can only work if we fully trust into each other. This means like I was, for example, foreseen to step outside to do a spacewalk uh, with a Russian colleague. And this would only have worked um, if we have 100% full trust. Unfortunately, this fell immediately in the three weeks after the beginning of the war. So it was cancelled and postponed. And later on, my colleague Samantha Cristoforetti did the spacewalk. But among us, among the crew, there's 100% trust. And that's the only way we can operate in space. Will this kind of international cooperation in future space exploration continue, though? Uh, Russia plans to make its own space station. Uh, India and China are racing, uh, competing in the space race. What's the way forward, do you think? I think outside in space, we're all human beings. And um, the better and more we work together, the more we can achieve and the more it helps also to establish peace and trust here on the ground among our teams and also among our nation and countries. So I strongly encourage all political decision makers to always choose the way for cooperation. But uh, we also need to see that the next step beyond the ISS will lead us towards the moon. This is a NASA-driven activity. Here um, we have a partnership between the Japanese Space Agency, the European Space Agency, Canada and NASA. So it, for the moment um, it doesn't look as if Russia is part of that one. Russia has decided to team up with China, so it's a parallel program. Uh, but I hope once we arrive on the moon, these two programs will again find their way together and uh, if in need, that we help each other. How do you feel about being back on Earth? Do you miss space? Yes, definitely. I miss space. Space is a wonderful place, especially being on the International Space Station. It allows you to fly in 90 minutes uh, once around our globe. So every day, 16 times sunrise, sunset. It's a very beautiful view, but uh, it also has sad moments when you look down on planet Earth because you see the consequences of climate change. And that's why we astronauts also become ambassadors for our planet Earth. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for joining France 24. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this special episode of People and Profit from Snowy Davos. Don't forget, you can catch up with this and all our previous episodes on our website or listen to them wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can also reach out to us on social media. Thanks for watching. See you next time.